The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Our guest today is Zach Sims, CEO of Code Academy. A serial entrepreneur since the age of 13, Zach now runs one of the world's most successful online learning platforms. The global COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in some people losing their jobs and being forced to stay at home. Zach responded by giving away 100,000 Code Academy subscriptions for free. You know, for us to be able to work on something that helps people kind of see the light in a time when, you know, there's very little light, uh, it makes it much easier to wake up in the morning. Zach caught up with my colleague Mark Dawson recently and they talked about why everyone needs to be part of the next technology revolution. The question is just how many people need to learn to participate in that societal change and our argument is basically everyone. How some companies aren't making the best choices during the pandemic. It's kind of hard to look up to companies that are, you know, that, that might be challenging their employees or struggling uh, in certain veins. And, and so, uh, you know, I think there is in some cases a dearth of role models. And pretending to be much older than he was in his first business. So I tried as much as I could to kind of do everything over email as opposed to over the phone. Um, and, you know, had, had to come up with a bunch of excuses to kind of explain away why it sounded like, you know, you were speaking to a 13-year-old um, when in actuality I wanted to be much older. Here's their conversation. So, obviously, uh, your business, very, very successful uh, home learning, e-learning uh, service platform, um, perfect for having half the country stuck at home, no? The company itself, you know, fortunately has attracted a lot of new uh, learners because I think more than ever with schools closed uh, and with people losing their jobs, you know, learning these technology skills is super critical. Has uh, the furlough period uh, been the most successful period for your company? Absolutely, yeah. I think we, you know, we've grown pretty substantially um, over the past couple of months. The, the company has, you know, added at this point millions of, of new learners around the world. Uh, and our hope is, you know, the, the product is available to many of them for free. And so, you know, and we've also given a bunch of scholarships to people. So uh, the hope is that we can be helpful. I think our focus during this time, you know, and many companies, I think, had this uh, fork in the road of should we be helpful uh, and give things away, you know, for free or the, there are obviously companies that focus on profit. And I think we were lucky enough to be able to do the former and focus on, you know, doing good things for people that may have been negatively affected. Um, under the hopes that, you know, that pays off for them and for us over the long term. Some online services weren't prepared for the huge demand that 
naturally came from people being at home um, or all these new users of their services? What Was there anything that um, sort of reached capacity very quickly in the first week you had to go and buy some more servers? It was definitely stressful, I think, uh, a definite roller coaster ride. And, and during the period when, you know, people are uh, finding where they're going to spend time long term, just getting used to being at home, at home, you know, doing shifts with their uh, significant others and their kids. So I think on top of, you know, new and weird and scary life situations, I think people had to manage, you know, this crazy onrush of new attention. But I, I do think, you know, online learning has grown substantially. I think uh, it probably pales in comparison to the growth that Zoom has seen, which, you know, is 10x, something like that. I think most online learning companies have grown, you know, three to four x over this period. Um, and we've been lucky that that has scaled um, easily would be the wrong word, but kind of relatively uh, well with a lot of the work that our team has done. So they put in long hours, but we've fortunately been able to make it work. 100,000 is very important number the past few weeks so yeah um, read an article that said you reached 100,000 paying members and like you said also giving 100,000 scholarships to workers affected by COVID-19 was that deliberate to have the same number 100,000? It wasn't I think we we were trying to figure out you know if we could do uh, as much as we could uh, kind of how much could the company give away and still be a business? Uh, and, and so I think we tried to push ourselves to to the limit of that. You know, there's obviously a cost for us to provide the service. And so 100,000 kind of came from that. Uh, and, you know, again, there's no real profit motive in, in giving those scholarships to folks that have been affected. And so the hope is just that, you know, we can make a difference uh, and help them get back on their feet. Uh, and that over the long term, we have a bunch of people that are really great testimonials for Code Academy who had really good experiences, who got new jobs, you know, who got themselves out of a bad situation because of using the product. And I've read read some articles where you you got some fantastic anecdotes about um, your academy graduates, what what they what they were doing. There was a an, an Uber driver that you um, he told his story what what he's doing. I mean, what what what's been the uh, sort of greatest success stories? that you can remember and the stuff that makes you proud? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it depends on the times, but I think recently there is, uh, you know, during the pandemic, one of my uh, favorite stories was a, a um, automobile kind of factory employee named Alan lives in Missouri uh, who, you know, had been had been furloughed by COVID-19. His wife is a restaurant worker uh, and the two of them were doing Code Academy together. And I, I think, you know, they they were doing it for free and, and they both said it kind of gave them purpose and meaning uh, during a time when, you know, being laid off or furloughed from their jobs had had resulted in just this general malaise and depression. And it kind of helped them see where uh, where they could be in the future. And, and I think, you know, for us to be able to work on something that that helps people kind of see the light in a time when, you know, there's very little light. Uh, it makes it much easier to wake up in the morning. Good. Yes. Yeah, so one of the joys of us doing this over Zoom is that I can I can read your tweets back at you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's not it, nothing bad. Don't worry. <laughs> so uh, June, June 10th. So next time someone says programming isn't useful to pretty much everyone, here's Major League Baseball, a Major League Baseball pitcher using Code Academy to analyze his pitching. Um, so that's a great, fantastic example. Uh, who, who is still saying that programming isn't useful? Yeah, I think very few people uh, don't see the value in programming these days. Um, I think it's pretty clear 
Mark Andreessen said in, in 2011 when we started the company, software is eating the world, uh, by which he meant you know, software, every company will become a software and technology company. And I think at that point, that's definitely true, especially if you look at the markets these days, you know, the markets are driven by technology companies for the most part. I think that the question is how many people need to learn technology to participate in that change and revolution. Uh, and our argument is always that, you know, more technology literacy across a broader swath of people, maybe people that haven't uh, been exposed to technology before uh, is critical. And so I, I think it's everyone knows now that technology is a skill of the future. The question is just how many people need to learn and to participate in that societal change. And our argument is basically everyone. A lot been written uh, if, if you take the, the doom doom mongers perspective about what AI can can do to society, uh, humans, the ro- role of humans in the world. Basically, um, how does it feel to be potentially part of that uh, horror story? <laughs> I think we our hope is that we can help people find jobs uh, and create jobs, and and I think you know there's always obviously the cycle of creative destruction and, and, you know, you have every industrial revolution, you know, in some cases uh, creates jobs, uh, new and different jobs than the ones it may have destroyed. Uh, and so our perspective is that in, in the future, you know, there might be tons of new and different jobs that'll probably be technology enabled jobs, uh, even though AI may change some sections of the economy that, you know, we are training people for jobs that are the last to go, if you will, and it'll be a really long time before uh, people are really at risk of losing these software-related jobs. And your uh, second and final tweet, don't worry, no, no more tweets. Uh, so uh, <laughs> June, June the 2nd, Code Academy and I stand for equality and for an America where we're all treated fairly. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. How have you seen, uh, obviously, it's, uh, Black Lives Matter has come back um, in, in prominence during COVID-19. How have you seen that develop from your point of view? Yeah, so I think, you know, when we started Codecademy, the hope was to give uh, an experience to anyone around the world, regardless of what they look like, you know, regardless of their gender, their race, uh, and give them the the opportunity to access the future. And and as we've talked about it internally and externally, uh, it's unfortunately not the case, right? I think there, there are a lot of prerequisites, you know, for someone to turn on their computer and start learning, uh, whether that's, you know, systemic income inequality, people feeling safe in their own bodies, um, you know, fear of persecution. And I think, you know, it's silly to pretend like it's that easy. And so I think one of the things that we've done as an organization um, is, you know, think about number one, how we can be more of a diverse uh, company. And then most importantly, how we can have an effect on, you know, the diversity that we see uh, in technology. And and if we're really training people for these jobs of the future, uh, then how can we make sure that, you know, we're offering them equally to everybody and that, you know, we're giving everyone a fair shot. So that, that's been, I think, our focus the past couple of weeks and, you know, far beyond that. Is Code Academy perhaps more, more diverse than we, we mentioned um, Stanford, but let's, let's broaden that to universities. Is, would you say Code Academy, just because of its easy access, is more uh, diverse with regards to gender and uh, race? Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely more diverse uh, with regards to computer science or, uh, classes in colleges and uh and yeah, in colleges. Uh, and so I think part of that is, is not necessarily having a, um, a classroom where you can look left and look right and kind of see that, that you may, you know, either look the same or look different than people around you. And so I think there's, there's a way for, you know, the internet to be a leveler in that sense. And, and we, 
as a consequence, have better statistics amongst our user base in terms of diversity than the classic computer science class. But some of that is also the result of effort. I mean, in the past, we've we've done some work with Google, uh, and donors choose you know to specifically work on uh, the gender side of that equation as well. You know, how can we make sure that the language is inclusive? How can we make sure that we're reaching out to you know groups of um, young women that are learning computer science and, and make sure that the product is appropriately accessible so that not only are we kind of sitting back and waiting for a more diverse population to start learning, but we can make sure that we are kind of recruiting the next generation of computer scientists and engineers. Good. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about you. So when uh, I was 13 and I looked at an iPod, I thought, what fantastic music can I listen to uh, on this iPod where but you thought about you thought something different, didn't you? If you could tell us that story. Yeah, so I, I started my first, uh, I guess you could call it a business when I was 13. Uh, I got an iPod, as you mentioned, and, uh, you know, I had a couple of thoughts. The first was like, what should I cover it with? Uh, and I think back then, you know, there were pretty nascent, um, you know, a pretty nascent market for, for accessories. The iPod was relatively new. Uh, and so, you know, I went down a rabbit hole. I tend to get obsessive about things and... Uh, you know, discovered a bunch of case manufacturers and and some of them were in China and then basically started uh, importing, you know, small volumes of of iPod cases to sell uh, because I figured if I was having this issue, other people might have the same one. Uh, and so I, I kind of did that and started importing some. I worked with a couple of case manufacturers uh, in order to design iPod cases for them. Um, and always the, the more challenging thing uh, was not getting across the fact that I was 13 at the time. Um, I remember uh, talking to, you know, someone who I, I was working with. And of course, I had a, an exceptionally squeaky 13 year old voice at the time. Um, and so I tried as much as I could to kind of do everything over email as opposed to over the phone. Um, and, you know, had, had to come up with a bunch of excuses to kind of explain away why it sounded like, you know, you were speaking to a 13 year old when in actuality I wanted to be much older. You didn't cover the phone in a <laughs> handkerchief or anything? No, not that, or use one of those like weird, you know, uh, kidnapping style voice modulators, so you didn't know who you were talking to. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals, the Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid to large size companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Again, yeah, I think most most thirteen year olds uh, definitely wouldn't be entrepreneurial at that, that age. What? Why? Why do you think you were? Was this something that um, your parents encouraged or how do you think that happened? Yeah, I think they definitely encouraged it. I, um, you know, the original idea had been mine. I, I think, you know, it was the, uh, it feels silly to call it like the my version of a lemonade stand. Um, 
but you know, it was something that I, I had kind of seen and become interested in. And, um, you know, I remember presenting, my parents asked me at one point, like why there were packages showing up at the house. And, um, and, and, you know, when I explained it all to them and, and kind of wrote up a 13 year old version of a business plan, I think they were definitely, uh, supportive of, you know, starting something and learning a bunch of business lessons. Um, I think they were maybe a little bit worried, like, what are you doing up there on your computer all the time? Uh, but, you know, pleased that I was working on something that was entrepreneurial and, and learning these lessons from a young age. Were they entrepreneurs as well? How, how did, who, who did you think you got this entrepreneurial mindset and spirit from? I've tried to figure that out. Uh, they, you know, they are not entrepreneurs, um, you know, worked in relatively uh, traditional industries in, in real estate and retail. Um, but I think they kind of always encouraged me to do whatever I, uh, you know, whatever I wanted to, to kind of fulfill my dreams and aspirations, if you will. And, and I think I'm really lucky to have grown up in a way where, um, it wasn't an incredibly rigid childhood. And as a result, I think I, I kind of found these interests. My parents raised me to be curious uh, and so I found these interests, decided, you know, oh, it would be interesting to to work on at the time, you know, iPod cases now, obviously programming and, and jobs and they were supportive. And, and I think knowing that it wasn't like I was kind of evading some kind of dictate and I needed to work on my schoolwork instead of this um, probably made it easier to to get started and, and keep, you know, keeping on, if you will. So up until Code Academy, when you were at Columbia, you, you uh, again, a serial entrepreneur, by the time you were 19, 18, I mean, what, what, sort of, yeah. what, what were the major lessons in your teenage years? I think one of the, one of the cool things that I had done in high school is I wrote for a blog that was kind of a pre TechCrunch, if you will, um, that at the time was called Rev2. Uh, and it, uh, I got the opportunity to interview a bunch of folks that were building like early at the time web 2.0. Um, application. So one of the the things that stuck out to me in retrospect is I interviewed Aaron uh, Levy from Box uh, when Box launched in like 2005, 2006. Um, and then ironically, you know, 10, 15 years later, met Aaron and, and kind of traded stories with him after the company obviously is now public. And um, and so I think getting to speak to a lot of those people and ask them questions um, was just really inspirational. Like I think the the biggest takeaway for me was, you know, you don't really have to wait in line. Uh, whereas I think a lot of these kind of traditional industries where you, you know, start on the shop floor or you, you know, you're an analyst at a bank and it takes 20 years to become an MD, um, you know, talking to these people that were 25, 30, um, who basically said, I'm going to go start my own thing and I can make a difference now. I don't need to wait, um, was, you know, supremely motivating then. Uh, and I think kind of helped set me on the path to eventually start my own company. And then, uh, yeah, so Code Academy started at Columbia. Um, it started as an internal uh, thing for, for, for the stu- uh, your co-students, co- that's correct. So talk, maybe talk, talk me through how, how did that start? And Yeah, I think, you know, when, when we first started the company, uh, it wasn't much of a company at all. It was just an idea about, you know, helping people. Uh, that I was in college with who were like me, you know, mostly non-technical people who were just bewildered when they thought about what does it take to learn uh, an important skill in the 21st century. Um, you know, I, I had worked at a couple of startups in New York. I wanted to learn programming. And I took my first computer science class and it was just super difficult. 
Uh, and as a result, I talked to my co-founder and I said, it seems like there's a lot of people out there that want to learn this, but we, we keep making this much more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, and so, you know, he recruited some uh, fellow students of his to become teachers and uh, and started teaching classes. And, and he, you know, kind of built this organization ultimately that helped people like me uh, learn computer science. And, and I think that was kind of our first aha moment was like, wow, the types of people that are showing up for these classes are not your you know, traditional software engineering major um, because they see taking a class as, you know, not approachable. But what we were doing was much more approachable. And so what if we could scale that online and, and help people um, get these skills in a way that was just accessible as opposed to intimidating and scary? Were there any calamitous mistakes in, in the first few years that you look back on and think, oh, that, that was a dreadful idea. How could I even think of that? So many. Uh, I think being a you know, being thrust into this position of, you know, being the CEO of a company when you've never actually really worked at a company full time um, is a is a real problem. I think for me early on, learning how to manage was a real challenge. Um, and I think, you know, that there's everything from uh, I remember, you know, when, when I had to fire our first employee um, that just like it was physically impossible for me to do so um, because, you know, I was friendly with the people that we worked with. And and, uh, you know, I think that kind of determining how to be a manager when I had never really been managed myself um, was a real lesson. How to hire people, I think, uh, and, and how to pace yourself. I, I think early on, you know, we started the company, we moved back to New York uh, and we were, you know, interviewing as many software engineers as we could during the day from, you know, nine to five. And then we were working from 5 p.m. to one or two in the morning, um, you know, writing code and writing new courses and then doing it all over again the next day. And I think we had no idea about, you know, how to pace ourselves, how to live our lives. Uh, and we just thrust ourselves into working, you know, 18, 19 hours a day, um, not taking care of ourselves, you know, eating terrible food, not sleeping, uh, and, and thinking that, like, that was how it had to be done. Um, and we had to just, like, grind it out uh, in order to build a company. And I, and I think in retrospect, you know, that was a massive mistake as well. What's your sort of average working at week now? Is it, how does it compare to the 100, 120 hour weeks that you were doing previously? I think I'm probably working less from a pure hours uh, perspective, but much more productive when I am. All these. Uh, hopefully, this is not too Silicon Valley because I definitely cringe when I when I hear what you, what you said about the folks that wake up at four a.m. But I think like getting exercise every day. You know, there are certain things that make you more productive over the course of the day. That you know, when I was twenty or twenty one, any minute that was not spent like at my computer working was you know wasted time. Um, and now I find I just need to kind of step away, step away to do big thinking, step away to kind of get a workout in to feel better about the day. And also, uh, you know, the job has changed substantially from, you know, being an individual contributor to now managing, you know, our team is 120 something people um, and growing. And so it's much more meeting heavy. Uh, and so I find that that need to kind of be present in meetings uh, and the type of work and thinking is so different. And as a consequence, you know, the things that I do around the edges change. So I, I think like trying to make time to think, it, it, this is such a cliche thing, but 
um, is so important, whether it's blocking a day off every week or, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I went away for, you know, three days in the middle of the week and tried to turn off email to try to just focus on like a bunch of, you know, bigger picture second half of the year planning things that we needed to do. Um, because the average day, especially now that we're all remote is, you know, email, Slack, Zoom, um, and you're kind of getting barraged by this um, set of things that you always have to do. And, and it's hard to be proactive in that circumstance. Are you on social media? What's your view on the role of social media? As a formerly heavy user, uh, formerly a heavy user of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all these things, and now significantly less so, I find that they're, you know, they're a distraction. Uh, and uh, I think we've thought at times, how can we as a brand and how can I as the CEO kind of better use um, social platforms? But I think as a participant and as a place to spend time, um, it just is like a, it's a vortex uh, where your whole day can can be spun up into, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, so I do my best to avoid them all at this point because I find that they just are dramatic time sucks. How about uh, in the world of business now, who do you look at and think, you know, that, that person uh, does does great things in the world of business. I wish, wish I had some of their skills. Who's that person? I think, you know, Slack is very impressive. Lately, Stuart Butterfield, I think, runs a, a business that is uh, very, you know, seemingly um, is a fun, easy to use business that is kind of upended uh, communication. But he's also built a culture that seems to be very conscious and deliberate um, as well. I think on, on the other hand, you know, similarly, Zoom, obviously, over the course of the, the pandemic, very top of mind. I think, you know, Eric Yuan also has uh, like built a company that a many for a very long time would have said was like very boring. Uh, enterprise software is not the most riveting and exciting and nor is video chat. Um, but, you know, seemingly has taken something from nothing to, you know, a massive cultural phenomenon overnight and also just seems to be having never met him, um, but seems to be like a good guy um, and, you know, focused on family, focused on kind of really customer obsessed um, as he builds his business, which um, I think is is super impressive and, and low ego while he's at it. Um, I think as I look at like the public markets, uh, well, I mean, those two companies are public, but, um, and outside of technology, I think it's, it's kind of hard sometimes to find people that set a great example. In particular, I think you see what like a lot of the travel and hospitality companies are doing now. It's kind of hard to look up to companies that are, you know, that, that might be challenging their employees or struggling uh, in certain veins. And and so, uh, you know, I think there is, in some cases, a dearth of role models. Mm, interesting. So um, you've achieved a hell of a lot by the time you're 30, and we do 30 years in the future when you're at the ripe old age of 60. What, 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 do, you, what do you want to achieve before you're 60? Yeah, I think... Um, you know what? What I've always wanted to do with uh, with my life is to kind of create something that uh, outlasts me, and so my hope is that you know Code Academy can be that, can be this institution that you know is the number one gateway in the world that connects people to economic opportunity. Uh, and so I think there are many forms that that could take as a business. You know, maybe we're a public company by then, but to me, it's it's more you know, have I built something really enduring that I can look back on? And maybe at that point, I'm not even involved with the business. Uh, but you know, it's really like having created something and made something that lasts far beyond uh, my time here. So 30 years from now, I hope that you know that that is an institution and that I can look back on that. Also, I want to write a book someday. But you know, that's. Uh, that's uh, when I have some more free time, we'll figure that one out.
That was Zach Sims speaking to my colleague Mark Dawson. I hope you enjoyed this chat. Remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Mark Dawson and Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'll be back next week. Till then, stay well, stay safe, and thank you for listening. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid to large size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.